0: And we welcome you to the Monday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. For this President's Day, I'm very excited to share with you an interview that I recorded with a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, Edward J. Larson, responsible for a number of different books. He won the Pulitzer Prize for his book, Summer for the Gods, The Scopes Trial, and America's Continuing Debate Over Science and Religion also responsible for uh, other fascinating books, such as A Magnificent Catastrophe, The Tumultuous Election of 1800. His most recent book is titled Franklin and Washington, The Founding Partnership. And in this fascinating book, he examines the relationship and friendship and professional collaboration between Benjamin Franklin and George Washington, a story which spans four decades. One of the things that we explored in uh, our interview is the rich array of materials which Edward J. Larson could draw upon to write his book, which is, by the way, published by William Morrow. There is a treasure trove of letters exchanged between the two men, Ben Franklin and George Washington. And because they were so famous in their day, two of the biggest celebrities of the day, many other people wrote about them as well. And, of course, there is a plethora of articles written about these two men as well. And uh, Edward J. Larson has worked tirelessly with these kind of first-person sources and to, to draw a rich portrait of both of these men and of their fascinating relationship. Uh, here is my interview with Edward J. Larson, author of Franklin and Washington, The Founding Partnership. One thing i remember you mentioning in the course of the book about the letters between George Washington and Benjamin Franklin is that sometimes those letters include personal passages uh where they are maybe expressing affection or respect for one another but often these letters are really filled with uh, and i don't you might have even used the term perfunctory or just you know kind of the ordinary stuff of of what's happening and, and, and you know, kind of conducting business. And, and I realized as I read that that, that that's, in, in a sense, every bit as valuable to you as a historian as some of the other stuff that might be, in a sense, more quotable, more interesting on the surface. I mean, that matters, too. But a lot of this other stuff that's just about kind of the nuts and bolts of what was happening, uh, I should think is of immense value to you.
1: That's a great observation, and I would agree, because what we had here was more a working partnership than a friendship. Now, they, did, they were friends, and they, used, they called each other friends. They called each other dear friends. People back then were very careful about using terms like that. Uh, so there was a warmth between them in their own way. They were very different people, but there was a warmth between them. But mostly, it was a working partnership. And so, uh, I use the analogy. If I can, if you'll bear with me, I can use an analogy. When you write books about two different people, you tend to. Most of them are things about people like, like Washington and Hamilton, or or Jefferson and Madison, who were in a tight hierarchical relationship where they were literally. One and the other. In this case, it's a different type of working relationship. It'd be more like uh, FDR and Churchill. Both were necessary. Both Churchill and, and FDR were necessary in World War II. Both of them worked together, and yet they were both independent actors. They weren't primarily working. They were had this common goal. And that was the situation with Franklin and Washington. They were the two leading patriots. They were the two leading advocates of independence. They were the two acting figures. Every historian that I know, everybody who works in that period would agree that they were the two essential Americans in the sense that without each of them, the revolution wouldn't have worked. Everybody else, uh, Jefferson and Adams, uh, Hamilton could be replaced. They played an important role, but they could be replaced. But without, without what Washington did on the battlefield to keep the troops together, and without what Franklin did in France to get the support of Europe behind this, and then working out the peace treaty, the thing would have failed. So they had to work as a partnership, which goes to your question. Therefore, they had to exchange key ideas. They had to do a lot of nuts and bolts stuff. Franklin, the only reason the war ended, of course, was the Battle of Yorktown. That required Washington moves the troops down and the French sending the Navy and troops. There were actually more French troops fighting in the Battle of Yorktown than American troops. And you add to that the French Navy. Well, It was Franklin who had to secure those ships. It was Franklin who had to secure those troops and coordinate with Washington so it all worked. So the nuts and bolts, that's just a big example. My book covers dozens and dozens of examples, starting with the French and Indian War, when Franklin provided the wagons that carried Braddock's troops to the great battle in which Washington fought with Braddock, and in that battle became a national hero. So we see these people having to coordinate and work together time and time and time again. And so their letters and their interactions and their meetings reflect that. So the nuts and bolts are every bit or perhaps even more important than uh, signs of of
0: friendship. Hmm. We're speaking with Edward J. Larson about his newest book, Franklin and Washington, The Founding Partnership. One of the things that's probably important for us to say, and maybe we've, said it somewhat already or at least hinted at the fact, uh, is that Franklin and Washington in in some respects were were not close partners in unbroken fashion over the course of many, many decades. Uh, they were, as you kind of said, both really significant on their own and at certain important points in their lives came together uh, in ways that were, were really exciting and also crucial to the uh, well-being and formation of this new nation. Uh, explain to our listeners just in the broadest sense those points in time uh, in which their paths really crossed in the most significant way. That also helps us understand, in a sense, the overall layout uh, of your fascinating book.
1: Yes, there was a, it was a perfect way you described it. It was an episodic relationship By the 1750s, the first time they came together, Franklin was already an international, renowned writer and scientist, an entrepreneur. He'd already invented his stove. He'd already developed all these different technologies. He'd done his work with electricity. Uh, that was the – he had already made his fortune. It was already an equivalent of what we'd call a millionaire, multimillionaire from his uh, publications and, and other uh, entrepreneurial activities. And so he had moved into politics, and he became the um, – basically the leading – political figure of Pennsylvania. And when the French and Indian War comes in 1750s, uh, uh, that war in America was fought primarily over what was then called the Ohio Country, which was basically the Ohio River Valley, when the French had moved down there and tried to take it. That area was claimed simultaneously by both Pennsylvania and Virginia because of the way the colonial cl- land claims were messed up. And so, the French recruited the Native Americans to fight with them. Franklin was put in charge of the military of Pennsylvania to defend the Ohio country. Meanwhile, Washington, who was much younger had risen because of his brother's death. His brother had been in charge of the Virginia militia and had been a soldier before in, in foreign wars. He was take, took over the military, and so he, at a very young age, was in charge of the Virginia military, which was trying to defend the same territory. So the two of them had to work very closely together, also with the British, and both of them came up with many of their ideas working together. They would meet together. Uh, they would correspond together. And they both became to distrust the British, have a major desire to secure the frontier for the colonies, not for the British, and also to um, to work together in the military defense. And they both became supporters of a greater union. So those are the things that they're going to stick with them. Then the war ends. They break apart, and they don't come back together physically until the second continental congress because franklin has gone off to europe to negotiate for the colonies again with the british uh, washington's gone down to his build his brother has died so he's taken over the plantation and he's trying to build up his plantation but they come together in philadelphia and they work extremely closely beginning in 1775 both as advocates for it, union Both are advocates of independence. They serve. They're the two most famous because Washington was a war hero, and Franklin was a great diplomat by now. They get appointed. They're viewed as the two most important delegates at the Second Continental Congress. They're appointed to all these committees together, all the war committees, the diplomatic committees. Then Franklin pushes for Washington to be head of the troops, and so Washington goes off. But to the troops in Boston and the American troops. But Franklin is head of the committees dealing with the troops, so they meet all the time together. They get together in Boston. They get together in in um, New Jersey until we declare independence, which both of them supported. Franklin, of course, co-writing the Declaration of Independence. Washington supporting it completely. Then Franklin goes over to... Um, as our diplomat to Europe, and suddenly they're working together at a distance, back and forth, coordinating the revolution during the the revolutionary period. After the revolution, they both go home. Washington goes home to Virginia. uh, Franklin comes back to Pennsylvania, becomes the governor. They keep in contact, but they both are pushing for a stronger federal union. They both want a new constitution. And so when it comes to the constitutional convention – Franklin pushes uh, Pennsylvania to support it. Washington pushes Virginia to support it. They have the convention. They put it in Franklin's Philadelphia. They come up, and then they work together at the Constitutional Convention with somewhat different opinions but bringing them out. They meet together often. In fact, when Washington comes up, his first meeting when he gets there is at Franklin's house with Franklin. So they work together. Then they work together on ratification they worked. Franklin uh, uh, supports Washington for president. They worked together a little bit at the beginning of his administration, but Franklin, of course, being so old by then, he's in his 80s by then. He dies in the second year of Washington's presidency, and so their relationship then ends. Though, wonderfully in his will, uh, Franklin gives one of his most treasured items a, uh, uh, a, a walking stick that was given to him by royalty in France. Um, he gives that to um, Washington and Washington, and it's still still at Mount Vernon. So again, it was an episodic relationship, but when they were together, the French and Indian War, the American Revolution, the Constitutional Convention, there was a critical partnership in
0: every case. Hmm. I wonder if you could draw for us a contrast, because I think it is so intriguing, uh, a contrast between the two of them in terms of Persona and personality uh because they're they're not exactly two peas in a pod uh and those differences uh extend of course even to their respective backgrounds uh in addition to the adults that they grew to become um, what what are some of the most intriguing differences between them uh because I think that helps us appreciate those those fundamental matters which drew them together. Certainly. And and they did have interesting differences, which makes them such an
1: interesting partnership, because remembering their key similarities is they're both key patriots. They're both pro-union. They're both strong Americans. They're both self-made people. They're both entrepreneurs. They're both people who, who had incredible political power but didn't really want it. And instead wanted to go back to civilian life, so they had those similarities, but Franklin was from the north, and he was a he had was born into poverty. he was a um, indentured servant he fled indentured servitude because he was a very independent minded person. He moved to Philadelphia and he became the most successful person. In Philadelphia, he became a tremendous – as an entrepreneur, as a thinker, as a writer, but he had – he always viewed himself as a middling man, as he'd put it. That is, a member of the middle class. Mentally, he was always viewed himself as a middle class American, even though he uh, amassed great wealth, even though he amassed great fame. He didn't think of himself that way. Um, In contrast – George Washington was born of a you know, certainly a planter family, somewhat of an upper class family, not really one of the first families of Virginia but close, and his but he was the the he was born of the second wife and the first wife who had died. Their children um, would inherit everything back there and that's the way Virginia works. So Washington even though he was born into some affluence It was the Mount Vernon was a was a uh, was an overused, worn out tobacco plantation. So, you know, this was the type of area and the type of place that even if you got to inherit it, if you weren't really clever and really resourceful, you're on the slide down. But Mm. he wasn't even going to inherit it. He thought he'd have to make his own life. So what he did was he became a. a a surveyor and was going to work on the frontier and was clever about about acquiring land. And he he got a military commission, and he served in the Virginia military, and he worked his way up. And then his older brothers died. He inherited the the sort of half-washed-up tobacco plantation. But he's smart, and he changes it into a wheat farm because he figures out how you can make a lot of money on wheat. And so he has a slave plantation, a plantation with over 100 slaves. And when he moves up, he gets himself elected to the the state legislature, uh, colonial legislature called the House of Burgesses. He begins to make the connections. He marries well. He marries a very wealthy widow, uh, Martha, who brings in uh, 200 more slaves. So he has a um, really pretty vast plantation. He's very clever about investing and developing and working it, and he acquires more land, and he works his way up in Virginia. But remember, he's growing up from from privilege and then maximizing that privilege and a slave-holding plantation, while, while Franklin is working himself up as an entrepreneur in an area that is not based on slavery and is instead based on Oh, mercantile. He's a merchant. He's a he, he's a printer, and so that and so Washington begins to view himself as a as a Virginia planter. as a Virginia aristocrat. In Quaker Pennsylvania, Franklin's viewing himself as a as a hardworking middle class entrepreneur, and so that makes them think differently in so many ways. Their instinctive re- reactions. Franklin was a great – a gifted writer, America's first great satirist. In contrast, Washington was a plotting writer. (laughs) I think – I honestly think his letters are really quite good. But early on, until, until he has aides who can correct it, there are a lot of spelling errors. There are a lot of errors of grammar. He has a certain ability to churn out some items. Um, but he writes a lot. And so we so so you see them as they in so many ways, they come from a different background. They think differently. Franklin becomes a leading advocate of ending slavery. Washington remains a defender of slavery because he comes from a slave area. So they have their differences. Washington believes we need a powerful um, central government under a strong president. Uh, Franklin thinks, well, we need a we don 't need such a strong government. Um, we let people go um, don 't have such a strong presidency, so they have their differences that come out in at the constitutional convention, but fundamentally um, they have they have similarities they have differences that 's why I like to use the analogy more recently of a of an FDR and a Churchill fighting World War II together. They certainly had their differences, but you needed both of these viewpoints, and they respected each other. Franklin deeply respected Washington, Washington deeply respected Franklin, they knew they needed each other, they worked together, they knew in a way they sort of completed each other, but they completed each other because they were so different.
0: Mm. And I think in particular, when we think of their personalities in the most simplistic of terms, we think of Washington as quite a majestic figure, a very serious figure, uh, a, a man in a sense of great gravitas, And we think of Benjamin Franklin as this incredibly creative and kind of quirky, sometimes even sort of impish figure, uh, so offbeat in his perspectives and so on. And and especially when you think about them in, in, in the way that we commonly think of these two men, the idea of them getting along, let alone respecting one another, let alone working together well, uh, seems almost preposterous. I mean, they are, in some respects at least, kind of an unlikely couple.
1: That's it's a great point because, um, and I agree with all your. Th- that's what makes it so remarkable that they work together. And they work together, of course, is, uh, is because they had the same ultimate goals. They wanted a, They wanted independence. They wanted a stronger union. They they understood business. They understood how you make. Um, a government work. They understood private property. They understood the economy. So they had these similarities. But you're right. Personality, they were so different. Um, and I love to point this out in some ways because Ben Franklin loves to take other guises. Even as a teenager, when he was an indentured servant working on his brother's newspaper – in, in, in Boston, he started writing anonymous pieces attributed to this wise sort of quirky widow, uh, 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 Silence Do Good, and they became enormously popular. He couldn't tell his brother he was writing them, and he he presented this viewpoint, and later on he'd be Richard Sanders and poor Richards Albinick. He took all these different guises all of his life, and in contrast— been and and they were funny they were impish they but they all had a point where you have George Washington who never showed anything he had this the he intentionally and he would he would explain this he would he, he would intentionally had this this well, he once told his most famous portraitist, uh, Gilbert Stuart, Gilbert Stewart says, "I want to capture you in your face, and he says, "My face has never revealed anything about me." He had this blank stare he, he was this monument, so one would would hug you, would wrap around you, would tell you jokes all the time, the other would be aloof with this with this uh, monumental faith. They both had their public image, which, as you're describing, was so incredibly different. But Washington loved a good joke. He could never tell one, but he loved a good joke. He loved to go to plays. Franklin wrote plays. Franklin loved to tell a joke. So they were a sort of a yin-yang sort of combination that it is Hard to see in one way them working together, but yet you can also see why because they were both they were both wise. Uh, Washington might not have been quick, but he was deeply wise, and he had a great perspective. Franklin was also wise, but he was also quick. They both were very deferential to others in the sense that they both liked to listen, they both heard things, and then they both were pragmatic; they both liked to compromise, but in so many ways yeah their their superficial personality, which was fundamental i shouldn 't call it super superficial in the sense that it was what they portrayed, what they projected was So different. One was impeached. Now both. This is a a fun thing. You're right. Both of them were great. Were great horsemen. Washington was probably the greatest. Franklin was very good at a horseman. They were both outdoors people. Washington could go out to the frontier, sleep in the rain, sleep under his jacket, um, go over mountains. Ben Franklin was a swimmer. Ben Franklin used to go swimming in the Delaware River every day. He taught swimming lessons and when he he went back and forth across the Atlantic something like 6 times, when he'd be going across the Atlantic in his ship to 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 uh, to get exercise, he would jump overboard and swim around the ship, and of course everybody would watch him because back, back then most people couldn't swim. Washington could swim, but so they were both sort of you know those are two different characters
0: absolutely and i'm so glad you mentioned that that matter of ben franklin being this great swimmer and so on uh that's early in the book and it it, it makes us realize that that i've never stopped to think about benjamin franklin ever being young i mean we we think of him in 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 terms of what he looked like Uh, in later years, kind of a portly figure, the figure we see on that $100 bill. But you tell us as a young man, he stood nearly six feet tall with an athletic build. I mean, it's just so kind of interesting to think about the Benjamin Franklin that we all think of and what he came from, in a sense, and and who he was uh, at other points in his life before he became the the famous American that uh, he ultimately became and that we remember.
1: Now, on that, you're right. And he, but if you look at him again in those older pictures, you will see it's an athletic body that has grown flabby. I mean, which is common. You you're you're, you're athletic, you're active when you're young, and then it grows somewhat. You know, you grow somewhat overweight. It's that sort of a, of a look. But still, till till his death, he used to lift weights. Um he, he did do these things but he did he did get overweight because he, he, he grew to he grew he at first he liked beer, but he, he grew to like wine after he was in France and um, he did love to eat. Uh but it's that he was a vegetarian, so he would be careful with what he ate. But um he did grow a little flabby with age, that's
0: true. Don't we all? But <laughs> those of you just joining us I'm speaking with Edward J. Larson. We're talking about his fascinating book called Franklin and Washington, The Founding Partnership, which explores some of the ways in which Benjamin Franklin and George Washington uh, were not only friends, but also uh, important partners uh, to one another in a number of different uh, endeavors, some of which were absolutely crucial to uh, our ultimate uh, success in the Revolutionary War and the launching of this brand new nation. Uh, I learned so much, Professor Larson, from your book uh, about these two men and their sort of uh, intersection with one another, uh, so much that I that I did not know. Uh, one of the things that I, I especially did not know, I, I had certainly read about how George Washington, one of the sternest tasks and most vexing challenges he faced uh, in leading our troops in the Revolutionary War was trying to shape our... Army uh, transform it from a kind of a ragtag group into uh, some kind of formidable fighting force that could meet the british and uh, you tell us that Benjamin Franklin actually played a very important role uh, in that in that effort. Explain to our listeners how uh, Franklin was an important partner with. Washington in terms of, in a sense, reconstituting uh, our fighting force.
1: Yes, and the word there, as you said, it is a working partnership. Washington deserves enormous credit. Uh, Washington turned, working with his team, turned a ragtag army, as you call it, a, a 15,000 um, uh, Minutemen and, and uh, volunteers and state militias into a working Continental Army that working with the French ended up winning the, uh, the amazing thing of winning the revolution against the strongest army in the world. But how Franklin played into it is Franklin had had his experiences, charge of the uh, colonel in charge of the Pennsylvania militia during the uh, French and Indian War. He had been very successful the, uh, the Pennsylvania had been attacked by the French and the Native Americans, and and Franklin figured out where you build forts, and um, he built a line of forts that successfully protected um, uh, Pennsylvania during that time. And so, when the Revolution came, uh, the Washington, who was had led the Pen- the New York militia, and Franklin were put in charge of as delegates to the Second Continental. Congress in charge of all the military commissions and uh, committees. And then Franklin pushes Washington, uh, along with others, to be the commander in chief. And then he runs these commissions. So he is sitting there in Philadelphia, arguing with the people of the other delegates, many of whom have this wild-eyed idea that oh, liberty will win. We can just let these volunteer militias do it. And he says, you can't. They won't do it. They, they you know, they They can come and go at will. Um, how you need a real army. I've. Worked worked with the British Army. I've seen the British Army in London. These guys are tough. We need a disciplined force. We need people with long terms of service, not ones that can come and go at will, not that serve for one year. No, we need a set Continental Army with at least three-year terms of service or the duration three years of the duration. And Washington, of course, agreed with all this because he was leading these troops. The, then the army was based in um, in Massachusetts. They would moved up there because the British were in Boston. And so Franklin is pushing the, pushing the Continental Congress to, to have longer terms of service to actually pay the troops themselves rather than the states. Uh, and he then is... Um, Goes up and meets regularly with Washington. He meets with them in in in, in Massachusetts. He meets with them in um, in New Jersey. He goes up and sees the troops during the invasion of Canada. Uh, so he's there, even though he's in his 70s. He's going all these places in these rough terrains and writing them about them all. He has he's sleeping on the floor and and um, um, with and in the war conditions and there pushing hard to reorganize the army. Now, Washington is – Franklin knows what's needed. They're they're talking together. Washington is implementing it. Washington knows what's needed. So they're working together then to do it. And then when Franklin is then moved to become the chief diplomat in Europe, he is the one who gets the key players from Europe, the people like Lafayette, the people like um, – uh uh the the Polish uh uh different uh, generals and colonels who go over there and end up being the European uh experienced military men who when they get back and are with Washington, uh von Steuben Training the troops, coming up with the discipline matters, these are people that what Franklin found and sent a letter to Washington. I have this person uh, here 's the letter of introduction to von Steuben to Lafayette, and you could just go on and on and on so franklin and then Franklin would be meet with the generals in um, in France and go over washington 's plans and send notes back to Washington about their ideas, so right through this whole process. Franklin realizes what is necessary to to beat the British that doesn't in any way diminish Washington's role of executing it and realizing it but they were they stood shoulder to shoulder they had exactly the same ideas of what was needed to win this war we need a disciplined continental force we're not going to do it with a bunch of of uh, volunteers they they will break they won 't stay they won't they won 't survive the the mount the um, the valley forges and the the uh, the Morris towns of this life we need we need an army, and mm. both of them realized it,
0: so mm. they worked together This portion of the book is is so fascinating, and I wish we had time to delve into all kinds of different matters, one of the most interesting being. Uh, kind of the question of what made Benjamin Franklin such a wonderful, gifted diplomat. And, of course, the crucial role that he played in forging an alliance between this fledgling America and uh, and the nation of France, which uh, that made a, a really big difference. I want to very specifically ask you about uh, the year of 1781 and what you term as the momentous events of 1781 and the fact that Benjamin Franklin had as much as anybody to do with what happened in 1781 when things began to turn around. What was the most crucial role that Benjamin Franklin played at this point, and what was the state of affairs at this point in time?
1: By 1781, the revolution, when it started, was at probably its low point. What you had was you had... The Congress squabbling and getting nowhere. In fact, they couldn't even get a quorum to get anything done. They literally could not have a quorum for the Congress. They didn't have any money. They were bankrupt and deep, deep in debt. And you had the troops. The troops hadn't been paid. Literally, the troops were not being paid. They didn't have enough food to eat. They were not properly clothed. Uh, A large percentage of them didn't even have shoes. This was the situation at the time. Washington was doing everything humanly possible. His dignity was critical. His, the respect that his men had for him was the only thing holding this together in the New World. In contrast, Franklin is over there, Franklin being the wily and witty and, and um, uh Person who could, you know, it's a different skill to be a diplomat. You have to sort of manipulate in a different way than to be a military leader. Both are critical. So Franklin's over there trying to work the French. The French, he had already several years later secured an alliance with France. But how far is France going to go? France themselves are having financial problems. He's constantly getting more money from them. It's only this money that's coming from France, these loans and gifts, some of them gifts, some of them loans, in huge amounts of money that is the only – source of money keeping the American government going because they're not able to get anything from the states. The states aren't giving any money to the central government. The central government, Congress can't impose taxes. So their only money is the money trickling in from France. France is also sending, he gets France to send clothes, uniforms for the troops. He gets them to send um, guns and other military aid, ships that the American could use for their Navy. He's working to get those troops. And then he's trying to get them to commit a major fleet. Now, France, meanwhile, is fighting the British in the Caribbean for the colonies because, of course, once France joins in our alliance, they're fighting the British. And so they're having to fight not only in the New World, not only in the American colonies, but in their they had colonies in, in Asia and they had colonies in the Caribbean. So the French are pulled a lot of different ways to defend their territories because the British, you know, they're fighting the French. So they're invading French islands in the Caribbean. They're invading French territories in, in uh, the Far East. And so, Finally, Franklin is saying, we need these troops just for a little bit. One big battle might do it. And so he manages to convince the French to send the troop, send the fleet up, send the French fleet up from the Caribbean for one rendezvous with Washington. He'd already gotten troops over there, and it's that rendezvous, it's the French fleet coming up and blocking the British Southern Army. They have two armies in America, one based in New York and one moving around in the south, in Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, wreaking havoc in the south. It comes down to the coast for resupplies. The French Navy comes north from the Caribbean. The American Army, under Washington's brilliant leadership, leaves the engagement of New York, where they're engaging the British troops up in New York, moves it south, gets the French army, which is also then up in the north, to come south. And so you've got the French army, the American army, and the French navy catch. And together they have three times as many forces as the southern British Army under Cornwallis, they catch, they capture, they trap Cornwallis' army, and Cornwallis' army, which cannot re- be resupplied at Yorktown because of the French Navy, which drives off the British Navy, they have to surrender. And with that surrender, basically the British give up. Mm-hmm. They've This is their second major defeat. Uh, they'd lost Saratoga years before. Now they lost Cornwallis, and they finally say, Uh, this is just, this is an endless war, and the British people, the British Parliament finally decides we're not going to be involved in any more endless wars. We can appreciate this as Americans, how we feel today about endless wars in the Middle East. That's how the British felt, and they just said, we're pulling out.
0: Hmm. Well, that is not the end of the story, of course, Uh, just because there is in a sense, victory of the, in the revolutionary war does not mean this new nation can be successfully launched. To do that means the, the framing and ratification of the constitution. And I think a lot of Americans do not begin to realize what a difficult process this was to form the constitution and then to get it ratified. And in both of these matters, uh, George Washington and Benjamin Franklin were critically important, and and this is where some of their differences also come to light. The fact that they did not agree on everything, and including crucial matters like what should the new executive leader of this country, what what kind of a office should that be, um, how, what kind of power should they have, and other matters related to the formation of a new government from scratch. Uh, just, uh, I mean, I guess it's just a matter of summarizing, but uh, just give our listeners a, a sense of how important Washington and Franklin were at this critical stage uh, in the formation of this new nation.
1: Both agreed, Washington and Franklin both agreed that America could only protect individual liberty and remain independent if they were unified. They, uh, whether or not it's true, they both believed it. They both believed that um, both, they fought the revolution for individual liberty. Both of them believed in individual liberty. Both believed in, um, they both were proud Americans who wanted to maintain American independence. They saw the 13 squabbling states, each fighting each other, each with their own self-interest, many of them beginning to conspire with European powers. They thought this whole thing was going to collapse without a stronger union. So on that they agreed, and they agreed on the essential elements that this union had to have. They believed that there needed to be a national market economy, and therefore you had to have a central government with control over interstate commerce and international commerce. Back then, all 13 states had their own economies, their own their own money, their own... Um, they could set tariffs against other states. I mean, you know, it, was a, it was chaos, and therefore the result was economic deflation or deflation or basically economic... The, economy was collapsing. So they also believed you needed one strong central government and control of foreign policy, not the 13 states. They needed foreign policy. You needed a national army and military. You needed a unified economy. Those things had to be centralized and let the states only deal with whatever was a matter of local state interest like education or or or, 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 or different matters like that. So they both had the same Set vision, and they thought they they looked at what was happening, and they thought the whole was collapsing, so they wanted to have a new constitution, both of them, and they both pushed for a new constitution, and then they both went to Philadelphia, well, Franklin was already there, of course, but they both were there they both went to the they both were delegates and they at the time were the two most famous Americans, hands down they were the only two national celebrities, everybody else was local Jefferson might be known in Virginia Adams might be known in, in Massachusetts, Hamilton might be known in New York, but Franklin and Washington were famous throughout the colonies, they were viewed back then as the two main architects of our independence, and so Their credibility was needed because, of course, Americans, just like today, we believe in the states, we believe in local rule, we believe in states' rights, we're suspicious of centralizing power. They said the British had ruled over us. We don't want to have a strong central government unless it's with people we trust. And so Franklin and Washington had to work together. So they got together, but when they did get together – And they met together regularly during the Constitutional Convention. They were the most visible figures there. It's not that others didn't play a huge role. Of course, Madison, uh, Robert Morris, Governor Morris, um, Alexander Hamilton. But they worked, and they all contributed. But overall, the public viewed it as the work of Franklin and Washington. Now, they worked in secret. Of course, we know now because there were notes kept, but the public didn't know. It was like a black box that worked for four months to produce this Constitution, and out it came. We now know where they differed because they ended up, both men believed. You needed to compromise. You needed to work together because their main goals was preserving individual liberty and national sovereignty, and and developing the West, building, making, taking the West back from the British and the Native Americans, and and opening the West for settlement. So they had these three shared goals. How they got there? Franklin, Franklin distrusted. He'd worked with the British monarchy. He'd work. He distrusted a strong. Leader, he would, he would have wanted what we would say is a parliamentary democracy. He had been served three terms as he was then serving as the president or governor of Pennsylvania at the very time of the convention. He was in his third term elected unanimously to that job. But that was much more like a parliamentary democracy. He was more like a prime minister, and he made that situation work. Washington had been a military leader. He was used to a commander-in-chief, and he thought we needed that sort of a president, Um, a president who would be an elected – that is, he is Republican in the sense that he is elected. He believed that he should only serve a period of time, not for life, so therefore he would believe in – one term or two terms, and that's all he would expect. But still, it needed to be a strong leader like a commander-in-chief. And so they had their differences over the power of the presidency. And on those issues, Washington mostly won. Where they agreed on a stronger central government, they both got what they wanted. On the presidency, because Washington was going to be the first president, his ideas Concerns for a strong leadership basically won, and Franklin basically lost on the power of the presidency. Though Franklin did get certain things, he got the power of impeachment. Um, he thought we've got to at least let Congress be able to impeach the president, so he got impeachment powers, which weren't which Washington, you know. Went along with, he was not worried that he'd be impeached. He went along with, but they were Franklin's ideas. Franklin also wanted term limits. He also wanted limitations on how much a president would be paid. He wanted to have a cabinet and an advisory council. So he got some of his ideas in there, but he basically what he wanted was a president who was elected by the legislature who would be like a prime minister.
0: I love the way you put this when you say Franklin and Washington embraced the Constitution because it realized their long-held ambition for a fortified federal government with consolidated authority over commerce, defense, and, and uh, taxation. It tells much about their rational pragmatism and faith in Republican virtue that, despite its compromises, Franklin and Washington so unreservedly accepted the American Constitution. And, of course, you go on to describe the tireless fashion in which they worked, sometimes behind the scenes, uh, to get this Constitution ratified. And uh, that in and of itself is quite a journey. But I think we'll leave it to our listeners to explore that on their own, that and much more in your fascinating book titled Franklin and Washington, The Founding Partnership. It is published by William Morrow and the author Edward J. Larson Edward J. Larson, uh, I can tell just from reading this book why you have a Pulitzer Prize on your shelf at home, Uh, and uh, I I congratulate you on an absolutely marvelous book, and thank you most sincerely for being part of the morning show today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was truly delightful, and your questions were magnificent. Thank you so much.